The first time I ever had to share at all in a reflection on the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letter to the church in Sardis, it was interesting because I was pastoring a church at that time in British Columbia in between the towns of Yero and Chilliwack in a place that was called Sardis. And it was kind of fun that Sunday morning because I remember everybody in the church, out of all the seven letters of the seven churches, they were leaning forward a little bit more because they kind of wondered, like, is there some sort of parallel, right? The fact that they lived in a place called Sardis made them particularly interested in that letter. And as I thought about the reflections, too, of how Sardis was this fertile plain with this mountain by it, and Mount Shem kind of comes over the, the town and the city of Sardis, and there's a fertile plain out from there, that their populations were actually nearly identical, um, best estimates at about 80,000 people, somewhere 60 to 80, right in there. And as I looked at these parallels, I thought, man alive, there's not that much distance between us and this text, and this text in the moment it was written. And when that small space between those is filled in with the same Holy Spirit that penned those words that's now interpreting for us in that moment, that space becomes even smaller. If I told you today before we started that this was titled the letter to and your name was on it, would you lean in a little more? Would you open up a little further? You see, because of all of the seven letters to the seven churches that we're going to read, I actually think that this one today speaks to this historical moment in America, to the church in America today. And I want you to see if that same resonance takes place with you as we approach this text. Of course, we've been walking through these seven letters to the seven churches, and we're hitting the fifth one today, letter to the church in Sardis. I've been following a chiastic model that we've talked about several different times. This was first introduced to me by one of my favorite preachers by the name of Daryl Johnson um, in a book he wrote called Discipleship on the Edge, if you're looking for a revelation book because you're becoming interested in this. Here's a little chart that I drew up, and you'll notice some of the uniqueness of when we get to Sardis. There's, um, in this deeds section, like I know and then Jesus reveals something, that it's Laodicea and Sardis are the two that don't really have anything positive at all to say about them. So in many ways, the letter to Sardis, or what I would also call the letter to the American church today, is pretty harsh. And I want you to have an open spirit to receive a little bit of what I think we're being challenged with. Here it is. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Let's talk about Sardis, this place that was receiving this letter. As we found out in this series, each place sort of has a uniqueness of Jesus' words that is specifically tailored to that. He continues to reveal himself as the one who walks among the churches, the one who is present, the one who has eyes of blazing fire that searches hearts and minds, the one who is in us and among us and knows us intimately, the one who battles us and challenges us um, with, a, with a short hand dagger. He's up in our space, and he knows the people in Sardis all too well. A place where there's a population between 60 and 100,000. These are remains, actually, there to this day of the Temple of Artemis that was down in that fertile plain that surrounded um, this city. And you can see in the backdrop the fortress on top of which it was built. Sardis was a junction point for five major trade routes, and so it was a huge center of commerce. And even though it wasn't that large population-wise, it was incredibly wealthy, and there was a lot of business going on in this place. It sat on the top of Mount Molis, overlooking the fertile valley below, and surrounded on three sides by sheer 1,500-foot cliffs, making this a, like a military strategist's dream to call home. When you've got sheer cliffs on 1,500, 1500 feet down on all sides, one road coming in at one giant gate, there's only one place where you think you have to protect yourself. It's pretty obvious where your only possible point of penetration could be. And so, here's a picture looking off the top um, of that mountain, how you look down on everything below. You could see an enemy coming for miles. Perhaps this is why in 600 BC, one of the famous kings of that time period, King Croesus, made Sardis the capital of his empire. A very, very safe place to be. At the time of the writing of this letter, Sardis would have been known throughout that region as incredibly affluent and had a very easy lifestyle. In fact, out of all the seven letters to the seven churches we're going to read, the average person here probably would have had more wealth, including in the church, than anywhere else. This was sort of the 90210 zip code of the ancient world. It had the largest and wealthiest of the seven churches. Even though the city wasn't the biggest, Sardis was far and away the largest and wealthiest, the most powerful of all the seven churches. And one last little point of note, is a capital of wool production, and I'll show you why I think that's significant in a little bit. We hit this section, right, the I know, the Jesus intimate knowledge piece where he's speaking to each church, where he's speaking to us saying, I, I know you. I know everything about you. I, I know your deeds. And isn't it interesting as we're coming up upon the celebration of the Reformation where the church recognized and called back, was called all the way back to our faith is not about our deeds, it's not about earning a point of salvation, right, that this is all about we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith and not by works. But five out of seven letters in the seven letters to the seven churches, which are also written to the churches of all time and space, say, I know your deeds. And it's interesting that Jesus keeps coming back to this word. Now it's not because the deeds in any way contribute toward our salvation, but deeds are also always the evidence of our salvation. If we are found in Christ, if you've invited the most powerful force in the entire world into your life, if you've invited the one who's conquered death into your life, the one who said he would send us out to cast out demons, to heal, to change, to transform the world, to call all peoples to bow before him and proclaim his name, if that's the invitation, then, and that's what's come into our lives, 
our lives have to look different. And if he said, I will send one of the three persons of the Trinity and they will be inside you and they will produce fruit and they will produce gifts and I will protect you with spiritual armor and I will do all of these things for you, then our life has to look different. Deeds have to be manifesting, looking back at that salvation, what we've received from Christ and be the demonstration, the evidence, the proof that is being played out. Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount like this. You will know them by their fruit. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. You've got, you've got a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. In many ways, Sardis would have been like the megachurch, and I'm sure they got all kinds of great things going on. Daryl Johnson, in his sermon on this, says, I'm sure Sardis had a, a snappy church council and a great evangelism committee that the choir was belting out beautiful numbers every Sunday. The preacher was just killing it from the front. And all of these pieces were in place, all the evidence, all the things that our earthly eyes look for in the middle of this. You have a reputation for being alive. But the one who searches hearts and minds knows. And he calls them out. But you are dead. What a hard word to receive. We will be known by our fruit. And so this church, the problem with it is it's resting on its laurels. It looks good on the outside. See, one of the hardest things I think for us today is every one of us is thinking, my life is full of deeds, right? It's really, really busy. I read all the statistics. I know that your generation, your classes coming in have higher levels of stress and anxiety and busier schedules than anybody who has come before you and tried to attempt college. I know that. I know that your schedules have been managed and overpacked and overfilled long before you ever got here. And I know that you've probably been a part of a lot of different things, a lot of good things. But if your spiritual director were to lay out your calendar, or if the one who searches hearts and minds were to lay out your calendar and how we're spending all this, I think one of the questions he'd want to ask us today is, let's examine these deeds. And there might be a whole lot of good things on your calendar, but are they part of the greatest thing? Could it be that the greatest threat to our Christianity today and to the American church is the very things that we've started to call blessings. Could it be that our comfort is actually our greatest threat? You notice in that letter that we read, the Sardis, there's no talk of persecution, there's no heresy coming from inside the church like the other churches we're all struggling with. Their problem was that they probably kind of had it too easy. Now, I want you to hear me right when I say this, because Christianity is not supposed to be some form of masochism. But it's pretty hard to look at Christianity and look at what Jesus teaches, someone who said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and not know that there's going to be some sort of hardship involved in this if we're doing it right. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. I remember watching the Global Leadership Summit a number of years ago with Bill Hybels, and he was interviewing Bono, and, he, and Bono spoke some really hard and critical words towards the Church of America. And I think he spoke this prophetically, honestly, at the time. He said, you know, the Church in America, to me, is like, it's like a sleeping giant. There are all these incredible causes all around the world at the tip of the spear moments where, the evangel where evangelism has yet to reach people, where there is extreme poverty and the church isn't touching it because they're doing their own stuff. 
It initiated a challenge to a whole lot of different people. Bill Hybels had him come back to the Global Leadership Summit three years later and ask them, have you seen a difference? I'll never forget his answer, because he said this, I knew that the sleeping giant could be roused. I just didn't know that she could run this fast. That it is possible for us to move at a much quicker pace. It is possible. You cannot be given a kingdom like this and sit back and wait for life to happen to us. And we need to start asking ourselves some hard questions about what we really think is the essence of our faith and, and how that manifests itself out in our lives. You see, because this term here, wake up, this is actually a military term. Literally translated, it's keep the watch. And people in Sardis would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about when he would have said this word, because there's two times in Sardis' history where it fell prey. In 549 B.C., Cyrus came, sent one skilled climber up the wall on the side where nobody would have expected, came in, infiltrated, opened the gates, assassinated, won a victory. One person in the most unlikeliest of spots at night when everybody else was sleeping. And the guards thought that they were so safe that even they too could take a nap. The second time happened in 218 where Antiochus the Great sent 15 men. They scaled the wall again at night, found the guards asleep on the wall, on the watch. Everybody was so comfortable and so safe. They had been left alone for so long that they just sort of take for granted that was always going to be the case. And so could it be that for us too, the greatest threat to our spiritual safety is our safety? The greatest threat to our faith today could be the fact that it's not being challenged on enough fronts. Do we need to have these boundaries for us pushed in a new way? Do we challenged in a new way? Craig Keener in his commentary on Revelation says it like this, that Jesus' oracle to Ephesus challenges a loveless church. His oracle to Smyrna challenges or encourages a persecuted church. His oracle to Pergamum addresses both persecution and compromise. But Jesus' words to Sardis summons a sleeping church to wake up. To wake up. George Caird in his commentary says, Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. If there was a letter being written to the church in America today, I think these same words would be penned about us. The perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Is this true? The question that I want to ask you guys with, and if you forget everything else this morning, it's just really this one. Are we content with mediocrity? Are we content with just getting by? Is good good enough? I have sat in denominational meetings and heard conversations that sound like this. You know, all the other churches are going backwards. They're losing members right now. So I guess if we're just holding our own, then we're winning. We were not given the power to conquer death through the resurrection of Jesus to hold our own. To sit back in safe places? The greatest compliment that Satan can ever pay you was to put a giant target on your back because you were a threat to the kingdom of darkness. The church in Sardis was so comfortable they were not kicking at the darkness and they were not threatening anybody. This has to be part of who we are. We are not given the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not given inheritance and the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And we are not given the power of the resurrection to share with Christ that we would sit back 
We have to constantly be moving forward. Anybody who is not is resting. They are sleeping. And we're leaving ourselves open to a place where Satan can attack us in new ways. And we too will be caught with our guard down. Is your spiritual life moving forward? Are you gaining new ground? Are you putting yourself in the places where you can grow? If you're wondering right now, is this me? Am I in this place? All I want to do and say to you is find one more thing to pick to move forward. Find one more sin that, say, that the Spirit has been convicting you of for a while and say, I'm giving this over today. Find one more discipline, one more practice to say, I'm going to put myself in that place. See, because all we do have to do is put ourselves in that place. You have to make that movement and then God responds. James 4, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. So this isn't about acts. I'm not telling you try harder. I'm not telling you to muster up more stuff, put four more things on your calendar, make yourself more busy and go about doing more deeds. Carl Jung once said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. And I think that's so often where we live today, just running around frantically. And then because we're really busy, we're thinking we must be doing this right, like I'm pouring myself out. But what if we're busy about the wrong things? The people in Sardis were so good at getting along with their community that they weren't even persecuted. There was no heresy coming inside. Their greatest threat to themselves was themselves. And I'm sure all their kids, when they went to school, wore the same sneakers as the other kids and drove the same kind of bikes and played the same video games and listened to the same music. I'm sure in many regards, they were very indistinguishable from the culture around them. But we're supposed to look pretty freaky to the rest of the world. We're supposed to be beautifully different. Supposed to stand out against that grain. And I love this invitation because this is really what it is. It's not try hard. It's just come near. Take one step. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. All the songs we sang at the beginning about the simplicity of our faith, this is what it's calling back to. If you're feeling tired today, this message is for you. And then the theological things that he says in this passage and challenges us with the actual verbs of what we're supposed to do if we feel convicted by this. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Hold tight. Repent. These are not complicated theological concepts. It's the stuff that you do at the beginning, right? Just back up and go back through it. We've been fed so much. We're kind of theologically obese right now as the American church. We've been filled up. We've got enough books. We've got enough videos. We've got enough all this stuff. But we were meant to run and meant to run into the darkness a lot harder than this. What if you are way more powerful than you ever realized? What if the greatest lie that Satan has inflicted upon your church and you and our families is that it's just that simply we're not as effective as we really are? And what if we believed it? What if the resurrection power of Jesus was truly in you? What if there's more inside of you than you've ever acknowledged because of what Christ has done? What if he's put a kingdom and a church inside of you that cannot help but move forward and take ground? Take the step. Make that movement. Do something small. Come near to me, and I'll come near to you. And then Jesus never gives us an invitation that doesn't come without a promise. To the one who is victorious, 
like them, right, like those who have remained and not soiled their clothing, they will be dressed in white. This center of wool production and where fine clothes and affluence were all important, Jesus is like, I can dress you better than anybody. I can make you look more beautiful to the world than anything you will ever put on. I can become all of that for you because that's what I am. I am the deepest longing of every human heart. And I can cover you. And the very things that you're looking for, I can deliver in a way that you didn't even know how to ask. I love this line. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. In the city of Sardis, like so many other cities at this time, if anybody was ever did a, some sort of horrific crime or was going to go away to prison, it was going to be a stain on that city's record or if they were going to be executed. So at this practice, they would go to the books of citizenship and then they would blot that person's name out so there wouldn't be some sort of stain on them. Jesus takes these same practices that they had and he reclaims them and he redeems them and he makes them his and he says, your citizenship might do this. You might be at risk. If you screw up in that culture, if they decide that they don't like you anymore, you will tumble fast and they will remove your name from citizenship. You will not have a home. You will not have belonging. But come to me. I will never blot out your name. I will hold this. You won't even have to do it yourself. It's not going to be a performance game for I have already done it for you. Oh, and I will acknowledge your name before my Father. So often we make our faith all about sort of have you declared, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You know that Jesus is also confessing you in the same way, right? Jesus is testifying, I love this kid. They're mine. That's who I died for. I did it for him. I did it for her. I did it for them. All of this, it's for them. Why would we have all of this given to us and then not ever take the car out of the garage? Fear we're going to get a scratch on it. This is sort of what we're doing. We're hoarding these gifts that God has given us. And we're just packing them away, worried that someone might get at them. All the while, he's like, drive the thing! Move it! it is, you, are, you have so much more. For Pete's sake, enjoy your faith. Watch what I can do. Step out into new places. I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is knocking on every single one of your hearts and calling you somewhere new. He cannot help but not do that because he cannot help but kick at the kingdom of darkness. So where is that happening in your life? And where do you need to take one step today towards God so you can see him in a new way? You want to move in your Christian life. Do not settle for mediocrity. Do not listen to the lies of anybody else telling any other story that has anything to do with a kingdom that is not meant to advance. It has to advance. It's in its very nature. This light will penetrate all darkness. And when you wake up, just like it tells us in the story, do not be afraid. When you first wake up, light always seems blinding. If my kid runs into the room and I'm in the middle of sleep and they throw on the light, it seems too bright at first to even take. And many Christians at that point in time then back off. Just know that that's coming. To wake ourselves to some new space, to be aware of something today that we didn't know yesterday, doesn't mean that God didn't know. Now the lights are on. Now we're watching again. Take a step. Move forward. You were meant for this. To have life and to have it to the full. It's Jesus' gift. And he still wants it for his church. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that at times we have a sickness whether we name it or it's been diagnosed for us or not, that our apathy and our safety 
just might be our biggest threat. Father, we've recrafted words in the American church like blessing to mean physical safety, to mean affluence, to mean a season where we're not being confronted. Father, take us back. To be blessed means to be favored by you, and to be favored by you means to be part of a kingdom that is moving into darkness, that is always advancing. Father, help us to see who we really are in you. Father, for anybody here who's got a screen, a filter of lies that the evil one has put in front of them, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd remove that. You can roll stones away from graves. Father, you can make this move. Lord, for all the places where we need to wake up, we need to take a step forward. We've amassed the greatest amount of resources, the best education the world has ever seen. You've mobilized us. You've equipped us. Father, help us to move it forward. Help us to grow. Help us to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. To not be surprised when it kicks back, but to be faithful and obedient to you in in each and every situation. Father, empower us by showing us how powerful we already are because of you and your presence within us. Help us take this forward. In Jesus' name, amen.